Welcome everyone to episode four of the Baking with House of Bread. My name is Sheila McCann and I started House of Bread in 1996. And through the years, I've taught a lot of people how to bake bread. I'm very confident that I can help you in your bread making journey. And I say a journey because it really is a never ending learning process. And really that's a fun thing about bread. After all these years, I am still learning things. Today I'll be talking about dough formations, how to get to the good dough stage, know when you're there, baking the products, cooling, and just some general troubleshooting tips. Okay, before you start any new recipe, I highly recommend that you just read the entire thing first. Because often in bread recipes, they list the ingredients first, then they put the caveats at the very end of the recipe. For example, the recipes will say to add the nuts in after you form the dough ball, and get to the good dough stage, then you add the nuts. Or they'll say, like, hold on to the second step until about one and a half hours, as in sponge, some sponge recipes that we use for whole wheat breads. The problem, if you throw all the ingredients in at once going down the list, it is too late before you get to the timing requirements. And there are often requirements rather than suggestions, because, for example, if you did throw in the nuts in the very beginning, assuming that there's a substantial quantity in the recipe, What's going to happen is, is that when you are getting that gluten developed, it starts off pretty weak. And now you just threw some hard objects at it. And really, it's just not strong enough to withstand and, and push back against that. And so what you want to do is get to that good dough stage. And then you can throw in your nuts, your seeds, your raisins, uh, or whatever else, um, nine grain mix, whatever else that you're interested in, in putting with the recipe. The next step in preparing to make dough is to make sure you have all the ingredients on hand and that they are at room temperature. Now you can get away with a little bit of yeast that you pull out of the freezer, but other ingredients, um, be, they should be close to room temperature. Or really what's going to happen, you're going to delay the fermentation process. And so there's just such a small amount of yeast or salt in the recipe that those can be cold, but not the flour. So you really want to try to get to close as you can to room temperature. So once you get the ingredients in the mixing bowl, you'll move on to the kneading process. And some recipes are written with an electronic stand mixer with a dough hook attachment to use as your kneading machine. But you still got to take the dough out of the bowl and to knead it just a little bit to shape it into a loaf or to get the last bit of air bubbles out. Other recipes, mostly the older bread recipes, only explain the hand kneading process. I mean, really the choice is yours between a stand mixer or hand kneading. However, you cannot choose a blender or a hand mixer. Hand mixers are those kind of mixers that you use to like beat, beating a batter like for cakes. And it has like two holes at the end and you plug it into the machine. And it's great for cakes and those light batters, but not doughs. And I've even seen them. I mean, some of them come with these little dough hooks and they're really pretty much a joke. So my dough hook in the bakery is 30 pounds. And the paddle attachment weighs about three pounds, even if it weighs that much. So you get the idea. So the, the dough hook is so heavy because it's required to push into, well, somewhere, sometimes up to 100 pounds of dough, where the candy paddle is just moving away a real liquidy batters. So it doesn't have to be as heavy. But you get the point here is that even a two pound loaf will need substantial dough hook strength to effectively knead and you just can't get those out of those hand mixers. Let's say that you really are set on that hand mixer. <laughs> the only way I think it would really work 
And I thought about this. I mean, really, you got to sit on the floor. You got to wrap your legs around the mixing bowl. You'd have to grab the mixer with really both hands, not just one, because one of your hands is likely not strong enough to move the mixer around the dough. And you get the idea here that the nut, it's really not a proper tool. And you're really better off just using the best tools you ever had. The ones you were born with is with your two hands. And if you don't want to do the hand kneading, then use the stand up type of mixer, the one that, that sits on the counter. For hand kneading, you want to use the heel of your hands. That's where your strength is. And that's what you push into the dough. I mean, really, I start by bracing myself. You know, my legs are in a sturdy stance and I'm getting ready for some pushing and folding. I first begin to flatten the dough to about oh, one or two inches thick, and I, I shape it somewhat in a rectangle with the short side facing me. I then roll the top of the dough towards myself, and then I lift up with my fingertips, and I push the palms into the dough. And I put the fingertips up to the sky, and the reason I make this impression on new bakers is because you avoid the temptation of trying to finger the dough. Okay, there's really no strength in your fingers. And it's really too weak to effectively knead. So you want to use those big muscles that you got in your shoulders and your back. And you'll access those better if you're using the heel of your palms. And then what you do is basically you make a quarter turn and you repeat. Now keep in mind, it doesn't have to be exactly a quarter turn. But you just basically want to be pushing new dough into new dough with your palms. And through the years, I've seen so many different ways to effectively knead. And, and as an employer, you really don't want to nitpick on your employees. You know, so you see, pick and choose your battles with them. And I remember I was taught the proper way to knead. And then I'm watching this guy do it like, kind of like making a burrito. And I was going to say something. And then, you know, heck, his loaf turns out just fine. So just remember that. Just, just dough pushing into dough with the palms in your hands. It really is something that is easier to learn visually. These one of the reasons that I created online baking classes, and I do have links in the show notes to those. You can also find it on links on YouTube. And I took a clip out from the hand kneading and the baking class. Um, and that's why, you know, bread baking was handed down from generation to generations. And it usually was someone showing you. And then it got so complicated. Uh, I, I have people ask me these questions. And I mean, really, if you just... Think of it as kneading is just working the dough, right? So just keep working the dough and pretty soon you'll get to that good dough stage. And the reason I like starting the bread baking journey with hand kneading, because really you're developing a relationship with the dough and the communication is better by feel. And you really think of it this way. You don't want to put the dough hook in between you and that new relationship until you figure it out better. Plus, I guarantee that you will enjoy the exercise kneading and breaking down the mixture into a smooth, elastic dough. And a machine is not going to make up for that relaxing pleasure. However, it really is your choice. And just remember, it's your dough. And the dough doesn't really care if it's kneaded by hand or machine, as long as it's kneaded long enough to get to the good dough stage. So there's no judgment here. If you want to use the mixer, then go for it. That's the great thing about home baking. You can do whatever you want. But I did write the recipes in my book for both. So both hand kneading and machine kneading. And most recipes will contain suggested mixing times or kneading times, as you will. However, you need to judge each dough individually. Just as with any skill, you need to know what to watch for, how to identify a problem, and how to correct it if you're going to make good bread. It sounds more difficult than it really is. It's not that hard. 
I mean, a bread baker really should start by following the recipe guidelines for mixing times, recognizing that they are guidelines as all mixers are different and all hand kneaders have various effectiveness. And also the mixing times doesn't necessarily start just because you turn the machine on and you got the dough hook engaged. Think of the dough hook as the palm of your hand pushing into the dough. If the dough hook is not pushing into dough, you're not kneading the dough with that machine. Now I had a friend of mine, she uh, purchased my recipe book and she said her whole grain loaves were turning out like bricks. I first made sure she was using bread flour and then following the sponge method, which I'm gonna be covering in another episode coming up. I then told her to just knead longer and add more water because really those are the two most common errors that new bakers make. She said she tried that and still the loaves turned out short and dense. So I went over to her house and discovered that her little stand-up mixer was not kneading the dough at all. The dough did form a ball, but the dough hook was just moving around and around without cutting into it. I mean, she could have left that mixer on for 20 minutes, half an hour. It really didn't matter because there was no kneading going on. So the dough hook needs to push into the dough for gluten to be properly developed. So the solution in that case is basically we removed half the dough and we kneaded it with the machine and then we did the other half because it was too much dough for that particular mixer. I mean, frankly, it was a, it was a waste of time and the machine is designed to save you time. I told her to hand knead from now on and use that mixer for anything else besides bread. Incidentally, her loaves are turning up beautiful now and you will eventually develop a feel for the dough. And I say eventually as it sometimes it can take a few times. But once you do understand that good dough stage, I can tell you that baking bread is so much easier than making pastries and cakes and pies and all that. I mean, cause it really is about a feel. So it's kind of a freedom where, you know, you don't have to necessarily measure 100% correctly. You just sort of throw it in there and get a good feel for it. And you will develop the confidence to deviate from the recipes by basically mixing longer than they say or less, or to add more water or flour than what the recipe calls for. Because you got to understand that in bread baking, there's so many of the variables that come into it. You can't just be set on following the recipe 100%. I mean, it even happens in my bakery. For example, rye bread or rye bread, it takes a long time in that mixer. And it's kind of a dense loaf. So you really got to mix it long enough. And it's a smaller amount because we don't sell that much rye. And so our machine is basically designed for bigger batches. And so the smaller the batch actually needed more kneading time in the bakery. And so the bakers are generally mixing most of the doughs between five to eight minutes. Well, the rye bread was turning out short and squatty and it was falling apart on people. And the reason why, because we never really got the proper gluten development. And so basically what happened was, is I went in and looked at it and I mean, I needed that thing in that machine for probably 20 to 30 minutes to get to the proper good dough stage. So even though the recipes told my bakers to meet for five to 10 minutes, it was more than double that. And really that's because I knew what a good dough feels like that I was able to, you know, go beyond the recipe and just get to that good dough stage. The other thing that you want to think about is not drying the dough out too much. So I think what happens is that people come to this bread world after making cookies or something that's a little bit easier, and they're not used to touching things. And they're certainly not used to touching things that stick to them. Um, but the doughs should stick to you. And it is a little uncomfortable at first, but then you just kind of get used to that. 
And then lastly is that you want to give the dough time to absorb the moisture that's in the recipe. So for example, especially with whole grain breads, I mean, your whole wheat breads and some of your alternative flours, they take longer to absorb the recipe. So if you just keep kneading it and give it a little more flour um, at a time, just a very little bit more, then it'll give it more time to absorb that moisture. And if you're hand kneading, you can't keep, and sometimes you get can't keep the glob of dough from sticking to your hand in huge chunks. And then what you can do is just take your hands and stick it in flour. I mean, I have, there's so many times in my in-store baking classes where the people are just looking at me like, like, what am I making them do? Because it's just a, uh, you know, a globby mess that's sticking all over to their hands and their table. And I'm like, okay, just be patient, just be patient. And um, just, and I add just a tiny, tiny little bit of flour to the table. Because if I gave them their own, if I wasn't watching them, sometimes they'd put down like a half a cup and they try kneading that into their their dough. And then what happens is I get this hard dough and I got to have them add water. Well, anyway, so I learned is that to keep the flour away from new students, I don't want them touching the flour because they end up adding too much. And so then I will put like, I'm talking, what do you want to call it? Dash, scotch, pinch, whatever. And, but it's about a teaspoon at a time on their table. And what I do is I, I take the dough scraper or chopper or whatever, and I um, lift up their dough ball. I scrape whatever dough sticking to the table, put it back on the dough ball, put a quarter table, a quarter teaspoon rather on the table, and then let them return to knead. And then we repeat that process. And they really are surprised that, you know, after a few minutes that the dough is less sticky because they gave it time for the moisture to be observed. And that's why a lot of times in recipes, it'll say to keep a little bit part of the flour out um, and add it slowly at a time. Um, because it's really, it's easier to dry out a dough by adding more flour than it is to add water. I mean, in the mixer, it's a little bit easier to add water, but if, you, if you're thinking of hand kneading and you got a stiff dough, now you got to add water, right? Well, you can't just pour it on top. It's not going to stick in it. So what I recommend you do then is just flatten the dough the best you can, get it, you know, one to two inches thick, spread it out. And then I just like press my fingertips in there really hard. So I get this, these little wells that will give the flour somewhere to go. So then I pour the water on it and then I kind of roll it together, sort of like rolling up a sleeping bag. And um, I'm consciously trying to keep that moisture trapped in there. And then I go back to hand kneading and then water squirt out. And then you think, oh, I added too much water. You didn't. Just give it some time to absorb. And with all things, when you're learning in the beginning, there's a tendency to overcorrect. I mean, you think back when you're learning to drive a car and you're going too far to the right. Well, you jerk over to the left. Well, the same thing in, in bread baking. And I know I, I screwed up so many doughs in the beginning of my bread baking career because I would add water to the mixer and then the, the water would slosh around to the point I thought, oh no, I added too much water. I better add some flour. Well, then it was too stiff. Then I had more water. Okay. And then I got, and then I added too much water. So you get the idea. The whole thing ended up over kneaded and the dough began to tear instead of stretch as it's kneading. And at this point, the gluten has been damaged and it cannot be repaired. The dough will tear easily as it is formed into loaves and will not rise as high as it should. The other problem with overmixing with the machine, if you have a large mass as we make commercially, the dough heats up from the friction of the kneading process and that will expel carbon dioxide extremely rapidly to the point you end up with like you know, pockmarks on top of your dough and it's also short and squatty. And that's something that, you know, 
you, basically at that point you're making uh, croutons out of it and that's about all you can do. If you're mixing by hand, I can guarantee you that you will not overmix the dough. I mean, really, you would have to be crazy and you'd have to sit in there for hours and be doing it very fast. So that's why I tell people, when in doubt, just need a little longer. Lastly, it's not an exact science and there is a range of a good dough stage was really very wide for some doughs. So if you suspect you overneeded it, I would still give the dough a chance and I'd shape it and I'd bake it. And, and that's kind of a general rule at all times. So if you think you screwed up in the proofing time or the mixing or the kneading, because um, you're always second guessing yourself. Remember, you never know until that bread comes out of the oven. And so just give it a chance, put it in the oven. You might see some really good oven spring. And also, if even if it doesn't turn out exactly as you were hoping for, chances are it's still gonna taste great. And your friends and your family aren't gonna care if it's a little bit irregular. I mean, even commercially, I mean, we hand shape our loaves and so they're not 100% uniform. And so, I mean, I really try to tell people just, just do the best they can and try to get it looking you know, reasonably well and then just pop it in the oven. Okay, so for white base breads, I call this the, the no-brainer breads. I mean, really your good dough stage, if you think of it this way, it's kind of like this huge sliding glass door. It's really wide. And so you just have to get it somewhere in between there to enter that good dough arena. Okay, so now you're working with whole grains. It's more like an average door size. Um, so whole grains are a little bit more difficult um, to get to that dough stage because you've got the harder layers of the well, basically it's the bran and the wheat germ part of the flour that's cutting into the gluten development. Um, so anyway, so it's just a little bit harder and I'm gonna have a whole class on whole grains that I can discuss that more so. But then when you're working with, you know, some of the more alternative flours, um, it can be like, I mean, that good dough stage is like going through, uh, it, like size of a doggy door compared to a regular door. I mean, we're talking, it's a very narrow window. Um, and that's why I, I'm designing this podcast and I highly recommend that you start with some of the more simpler doughs, get that good dough stage feel, and then progress maybe to the whole grains and then start using some of the flours that don't contain as much gluten or have um, their whole grain and their alternative grains that can be a little bit more trickier. Okay, so when you think you got that good dough stage and there's a couple of ways to test for it and see if um, think you got it. How I like to describe it to people, if you think of a rubber band, okay, so you pull on a rubber band and it stretches. You pull really hard, it's going to break. So the dough only needs to stretch a little bit. That stretching tells you you have the elasticity or the gluten development in it, and eventually it's going to break. Okay, and then there's another trick that they call it the window pane test. I mean, to be honest with you, I had, I was baking for like five, I owned a bakery and I was baking for like five years before I finally figured out what that meant. Because I remember like holding it up going, oh, no, I can't see through that dough. And um, it's not, I mean, like you're not going to watch a movie through this dough. <laughs> the window paint test is really more of like, if you hold just a little bit of the dough, like maybe smaller than your, than you can hold in your hand. If you take it and you thin it out and you stretch it and you put it up to the light, and if you can see light through it, then that's your window pane. Okay, the other test that I like to use too when I'm describing the good dough stage for new bakers is, is you hold up just like, you know, the end of the 
dough ball, just hold up the end and take it with your hand and then shake it. Shake it over the table because you don't want it to break on the floor. And you shake it and contrary to gravity, you'll be hold, you're only holding like 20% of mass of that dough. And yet you were withstanding, you're holding back 80% just with that little 20% contrary to gravity. And in, like with anything, it's kind of almost easier to, to see it by video. And the other thing I look for is um, in the beginning, you'll start to um, you'll notice that the dough is it's rougher and there's like nodules in there. And then after you knead it for a while, those nodules disappear. And so it really is more of a smoother, uh, it, like they say, it's shiny. Um, I, you know, that used to confuse me, too, because I didn't really understand. It was never really shiny. But if you think of it's more smoother, how's that? And then you'll know. And start from the very beginning because you can see the transformation and you can feel it. So whether you're doing it by hand or mixer, just turn the mixer on, get the dough hook engaged for about a minute. Or if you're hand kneading, do it for about a minute. Then stop and really get a feel for the dough and take notes, if you will, or whatever. And, and then keep kneading and keep kneading. And you'll notice how things change and that transformation occurs I mean, basically how I describe it, it kind of goes from like a mess to a mass. And that's is what is often referred to as the good dough stage. Okay, so once again, when you're talking about whole grains, it's a little more complicated because the bran acts like a knife cutting into the temp of the proteins to make a strong gluten film. So basically you just need to mix the dough a little longer and generally they're, they call for more water and it takes more time for it to absorb. So you really want to resist the urge to add more flour when you advance from white doughs to whole grains because it will be more of a sticky mess and it does take longer to get to the good dough stage. So after the first proofing, when most doughs get to double in size, many recipes will call for the dough to be punched down. It's not really like a big punch, okay? It's more like a you just take it, you put your hand in the middle of it, an open hand. doesn't have to be a fist, right? Okay, and you just gently push down the center and the sides. And what really what it's doing, it reduces some of the gases that's formed by the yeast fermentation. And it redistributes the ingredients again to allow for better rising of the dough in the final proofing period, which is basically after it's shaped. And some recipes don't want you to punch the, down the dough. So don't do it unless the recipe calls for it. For example, like in your harder crusted artisan loaves, they're usually characterized by those large bubbles that you get in the final product. And if you think of like a really good a baguette, I mean, it's mostly crust. I mean, the middle is kind of empty. And so therefore, when you're working with those type of recipes, you want to be very gentle and handle the doughs. And after you, so then after you punch down the dough in the traditional dough types, I recommend that you let the dough recuperate for about 20, 30, 20 to 30 minutes as it'll be easier to shape. And also too, if you want to freeze the dough, and continue the process on for another day, it's a good time to do it. So I always like to get my doughs risen after the first rise, you know, whatever that recipe is for an hour to two hours, and then freeze the dough. And then I've actually pulled it out a couple months later. And with anything you want to freeze, you basically want to double bag it. You want to protect it from that environment. And so you just begin again, you let the dough on the counter, maybe um, it depends upon, you know, your temperature there and all those are different but basically if you get to room temperature somewhere between four and seven hours and like i said if you got white base breads it it can 
overproof a bit and the whole thing will be fine. When you start getting into some sourdoughs and some whole grains, it's just a little more temperamental. So you kind of need to feel it to make sure when it gets room temperature that you're good to go. If you want to use the dough the next day, then you should be good refrigerating it. So if you want to use the dough, let's say two days later, then really that kind of depends upon the dough. The longer the time in the refrigerator, the more likely it's going to be compromised. And I can tell you by the third day, you're, it's not going to work. So somewhere between one day you're good, two, day, two days you might be good, and three, three days you're kind of screwed. Because really what happens is the dough over ferments and you will likely, it's going to taste bad and it won't um, hold shape for you. Okay, so now after the, you've had all that proof in time, now you're ready to start dividing and shaping the doughs. So what you want to do is get your surface, whether it's a table or counter cup, and then you lightly flour it. And once again, emphasis on lightly. You took so much trouble to get to that good dough stage, you don't want to dry it out at this point. So you divide the dough into whatever desired sizes you want. And if you're making a traditional loaf, you want to get the air bubbles out now, because sometimes what happens is the holes result inside a finished loaf. When you go to slice it, there's, there's a crumbly hole in there. And once again, for some of the hard crusted breads, you want to maintain those bubbles. Okay, so, but in sandwich loaves, you kind of want to do one last shape just to get it out of there. So you shape the dough with, like, I call it speed and authority. Because what that'll happen is that so if you're confident, you just do it fast, quick, and get it in the pans. Because you want to avoid overworking the dough, because what that does, it tears the skin and makes the bread not only ugly, but it can be stiff, too. So rather than doing it over and over again until it's perfect, just get the air bubbles out as best you can and get that dough into those sprayed pans. So it's, it's like with all things in life, you kind of just want to strive for excellence. Because if you want to be perfect, first of all, it takes too much time to get perfect and it's going to drive you nuts. And, and doughs rebel. Okay, so how they, re how they re express their rebellion is they get tougher to work with. I mean, that's how they get defiant. And, and you're not going to win that battle. So if you get a defiant dough, what that dough needs is a little time. So just set it aside and let it relax, maybe 10, 20 minutes. And then you'll find that it's a lot easier to shape. And you always want to put the shaped loaf with the seam sides down. Uh, so your bottom basically goes on the uh, the pan. And, and so if you, you can also, what I do sometimes in my loaf pans, we'll put them in there and then I'll just roll, I'll use the pan and I'll roll the loaf and it'll get more of an even shape. And you want to make sure that the dough also touches the end of the loaf pans. Because what happens if the dough isn't touching the end of the loaf pans, um, you'll get, it's, it looks kind of like a mountain. So how you get rid of that, just basically gently push down on the dough and get rid of that huge rise. Um, a little bit of rise is good, but a huge rise, what's going to happen is, is that the dough in the oven, it gets even more exaggerated, right? Because you got your oven spring. And so then it springs up and you got a mountain of a loaf. Okay, and then it's really hard to match ends to make a sandwich. So that's what you want to avoid. So just make sure that the dough is touching the end of the pans. Now, let's say you're going for more of a batard or it's like a torpedo or you want to say uh, it looks like a football um, or like a baguette. Then I suggest by starting by laying the dough in more of a rectangle with a long side facing you. So if you're making a traditional loaf, the short side faces you. If you're making more of a baguette or a longer loaf, the long side's going to be facing you. So you roll it up and you just place the seam on the bottom. 
Okay, now you want to get a longer baguette, right? So, um, and thinner. So what you want to do is just kind of roll with your hands and think pushing down and out at the same time. So down and out until you get to the length you want. Again, put seam side down on the pan or the couch or the peel board or wherever it's going to go. And it's easier to see these formation tips in a video. And I do have the classes in the show notes that you can uh, take a look at. Okay, now let's say you want to have um, a golden crust. What you can do is just take egg wash and really it's more of just an egg with a tablespoon of water. I mean, if you use two tablespoons of water, you're still going to get a good egg wash. I mean, you can even just use the whole egg. Okay, so I mean, let's say you're a vegan. You don't want to do that. You can just skip it all together. And it's really more about looks. Okay, it's not about taste. Okay, moving on to pans. The size of the pan that you want to use just really depends upon what you want your loaf to look like. Now, I would start by calculating how high the dough will be when it has doubled in bulk and allowing for a little extra rising during the baking. So generally speaking, what you want to do is put the amount of dough in there so it's about two-thirds full in the pan. This is a traditional loaf pan, right? And then you put it in the oven which is just cresting over the top of the pan and assuming you didn't dry your dough out too much, and then you'll have a nice oven spring yielding a really nice looking loaf by the time you pull it out. Now, if you're gonna use glass for baking, you just want to take into account that glass will retain heat. So if your uh, recipe calls for 350 degrees in the oven and you're using a glass loaf pan, just think about 325, just reduce about 25 degrees and you should be good to go at that point. And I grease all the pans. Um, you can use a non-fat spray like Pam or whatever. And if you don't want to use that, then you can you know, use a paintbrush and just use olive oil or canola oil or whatever you want to do. And then some bakers like to sprinkle a little cornmeal on the bottom of the pan after it's sprayed. And it's once again, it's kind of more, well, it does prevent some sticking, but it's also more of an appearance thing. Okay, so now we go on to the second proofing when the dough's in the pans. And it's going to be a little bit different because it's going to be a little bit um, different than the first rising period. So it's going to be a little bit cooler, first of all. But if the dough is too cool, it will not rise well and the loaves will stay compact. You don't want to put like your rising doughs next to the air conditioner, right? You know, but that being said, if you live like in Arizona and it's, you know, whatever, 100 degrees out and you don't want to, you don't have air conditioning, don't worry about it. Okay, so what's going to happen is it's going to reduce the amount of proofing time necessary. So if you think of doughs as timing and temperature, so the higher temperature it is, you know, the faster you're going to get that action, the rising time is going to be reduced. Okay, so let's say that you live in, oh, Montana, and it's in the winter and you don't have a heater, <laughs> which would kind of be a hard life. But anyway, let's assume that. And it's 50 degrees in your cabin. Um, you don't you don't have to start a fire or whatever. You just want to keep that in mind that instead of taking an hour and a half to proof, at that point, it's likely going to take about three hours. So once again, just it's a it's a correlation of timing and temperature. Okay, so to test the dough in the pans to see if it's oven ready, basically what you can do is just press your index finger into the dough you know, at the edge of the loaf or wherever. And and you don't want to push in more than about a fourth of an inch. Okay, if the dent fills back in immediately, the bread is not ready to be baked. If the dent very slowly returns to normal or almost normal, the, red, the bread is then ready to be baked. 
Generally, you can also tell by looking at your loaves if they're oven ready. They will be about double in size and the dough will have risen just above the top of the pan. And lastly, if your dough is over, over, kind of already overflowing on the pans, um, then you want to get in the oven right away, right? You don't want to put let it proof any longer. So keep in mind, just keep an eye on them too and look at them and, and, and just get it in the oven at that point. Okay, for scoring, we use either, you can use a sharp knife, right? Or you can use the bread lamb, um, or, you know, razor blade, whatever. Um, the point is, is just do it quickly and with authority. So you want to cut about a quarter inch deep. Um, and so your timing for the egg wash, how I like to describe it to people is that um, you egg wash first. And that can kind of happen anytime. It can happen while it's sitting in the pan before it proofs or after the proofs or right before you put it in the oven, it doesn't really matter, but you egg wash for first, and then you do your scoring. And the reason why, because once again, it's about looks, because what you'll find is that you get that nice golden color where it was egg washed, and then when you score and it opens up, it'll be a lot whiter. So you just get a nice contrast in colors. Okay, so most sandwich loaves or soft crusted breads, they basically bake at a relatively lower temperature, somewhere around 350 degrees. Now your harder crusted loaves, such as like your artisan sourdoughs, your ciabatta, your French beds, they will bake at 450 degrees or more so. And keep in mind that all ovens are different and all ovens have hot spots. And the home oven gauges are not so accurate. And by the way, they're not any more accurate commercially. I and mean, we have oven thermometers, we kind of move them around the oven to figure out what, if I have to bake at another house of bread and I don't know their oven, I'll get a thermometer and put it around the oven. And I'll figure out where their hotspot is and, and it, you know, kind of adjust accordingly when I put product in the oven. So, so you might want to just get a simple oven thermometer just to get an idea of your actual oven temperature. And I can tell you for the outdoor pizza ovens, you can buy a gun and it points a laser to read the actual oven temperatures. And it really does kind of look like a gun. It, it, it's kind of fun. We have one at home and um, what, <laughs> we had a lot of, black pizzas coming out of there and I can tell you what happened was is that it was 680 degrees in the back of that thing and then it'd be like 150 degrees in the front so it really is absolutely imperative at that point is you've got to know your oven hot spots um, and because if that high of temperatures when you're trying to make those little thin pizza crusts I and mean, you don't get much margin in error I mean you divert yourself for like a I mean some of those little pizzas could bake in you know three four minutes right and so if you're diverted by talking to somebody or whatever um you're gonna burn that pizza dough and i'd like to my husband who i don't know what it is about these parties we have is that all the men go outside by the pizza oven for whatever reason it's, it's like they like to hang out there and then and then they're usually drinking beer and there's my husband talking to them drinking beer and um oh i'm sorry babe i he brings in the pizzas i'm like uh and so it's just happened, I'm not kidding, three or four times. And so now what we do is that, um, first of all, I will, I will take responsibility for baking the pizzas because if you're making them and they bake so quickly at that high temperatures, it doesn't mean you have to sit there forever, but you have to have at least about 15, 20 minutes where you're baking them in there and you avoid the whole burnt pizza thing. So a little char is nice. I mean, that's kind of what you want sometimes in those pizza crusts, but not the the black ones, okay? And and by the way, uh, 
those outdoor pizza ovens. They're really kind of fun and they're they make great vegetables. You know, that smokiness that comes out of there. So now I have my husband. He does all the vegetables or if he wants meat, then he can uh, cook the meat out there too. So whatever your recipe calls for, I'd reduce the baking time about 10 to 15 percent before you check it. So, for example, if it says to bake for 40 minutes at 400 degrees, I would check it at about 30 minutes. Because what I tell everybody in the bakery is you can always bake longer, but you can't bake less. So when in doubt, check it early, especially when you're doing a new recipe. And it's also important to evenly space the pans in the oven so that he can circulate evenly between the loaves. So, for example, if you got two bread loaves that you put in the oven, separate them enough so that you can get air around them. So they don't want to be together. Doughs in the oven want room. So the more room you give them, the better it is. And let's say that you have a crowded oven and you've got a small oven. Well, what you can do is just halfway through the baking process, you can turn the, uh, the pans around. And so they get a different type of exposure. And you'll know in the end result, if it turns out that you got one side that's kind of doughy and the other side is overbaked, well, then you need more room in your oven. And also, too, is that you might have a hot spot, so you need, might, you need to turn it around. Okay, so to check and see if the loaf is baked sufficiently, what you do is you basically take it out of the oven and you lift it out of the dough pan and you can kind of tap the bottom with your bare hand and there should be a nice hollow sound. I, I do know what that means now, but I can tell you when I first learned uh, and I was baking bread commercially, um, I burnt a lot of breads and I also underbaked them because I didn't really get that. I mean, it didn't, I didn't understand what a hollow, now I know what hollow sound sounds like, but I didn't then. Um, and so um, what you can do is you can buy a thermometer. I mean, they're super inexpensive and basically it's dough turns into bread around 180 degrees. Um, and so you want to take it and then you poke it in the middle um, because that's where it's going to be underbaked because the ends have more exposure to heat. So take your, th take your th thermometer and I tell my uh, people at the bakery, they have to pull up the loaf and put it on the bottom. Right, because if they put it on the top, there ends up with a black mark, and everybody, you know, assumes the worst. Right. So uh, anyway, just poke it in there, and then you'll watch it when it gets past 180. You're good to go. Um, and that's for traditional loaves like sandwich breads. But let's say you want to make a little more like a hard crusted baguette. Well, those can go to you know 205, 210. Um, but keep in mind the shelf life of those is substantially reduced. So when you bake at a higher temperature, your products aren't going to last quite as long. So it depends on what your goal is. And the other thing is when you take your loaves out of the oven, let's say they're ready, you want to let them cool on a wire rack. And so the reason why, because it allows air to get to the bottom of the loaf. And when you allow air to get to the bottom of the loaf, it won't get soggy. So you want to avoid that soggy bottom, right? And if you don't have a wire rack, you don't need to go out and buy one. But a lot of times in your oven, you're only using you know one or two racks and it comes with three. So just pull one out. So you just need a little tiny air and you can put the loaves on there. Okay, and then if you are going to put it in plastic, you want to wait till the bread is completely cooled. Because even if it's slightly warm when it puts it into the bag, the condensation will develop inside and you're going to come back to a soggy loaf. And the same thing if the bread is sliced warm, then the loaf will become a little bit damaged. It's really because the cell walls of the bread are very fragile until the bread cools. Okay, bread knives. They're almost as important as a good oven because the wrong knife can tear bread. 
especially if the bread is very fresh or very soft. So you really want to look for a long bladed slicing knife with serrated edges. Okay, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baking with House of Bread. If you like, check out the show notes to find more information on where to find me, connect, or watch an online baking class, or learn more about the business of baking. So until next time, everybody, happy baking. Thank you.